Hey everyone, welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm going to talk through two big legal developments. The first thing I want to talk about is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals decision regarding the Mar-a-Lago case. This basically dooms the former president's desire to have a special master reviewing documents in this case, and I'll explain why. The second thing I want to talk about is a really, really big case being heard before the Supreme Court next week. It's a case dealing with election law. And a shameless plug alert, I have MSNBC columns on both of these topics if you'd like to read more about them. So with that, here we go. Let's begin with the 11th Circuit case and the special master. Now, what happened recently is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel, dealt former President Donald Trump a really serious legal blow. And really, this opinion that overturns Trump's request for a special master, it just reads like a judicial knockout punch. The panel did things like characterize some of Trump's arguments as a sideshow. But even more than that, the panel really took the district court judge, in this case, Judge Eileen Cannon, they really took her to task. They repeatedly used language saying that she stepped in with her own reasoning, that she reached unsupported conclusions. You're going to have to believe me on this one. This language might sound kind of straightforward, but it really is just absolutely dripping with venom. As I've said recently in talking about this case, like somebody get the fire emoji to really do justice to the tone of this ruling. In addition to the loss itself, let's point out here that Trump must be particularly upset because he appointed two of the three judges that were on this three-judge panel. Again, the judges determined that he's not entitled to a special master to review the documents that the federal government seized in August at Mar-a-Lago, his home in Palm Beach, Florida. A reminder for everybody, of course, that the documents that were seized, reportedly, some of them are classified and highly classified, and it certainly appears that the former president should not have been storing them at his private residence. The fact that Trump's judicial appointees are dealing him losses actually isn't new. And that's something that I want to highlight now, which is there really is a big difference between President Trump's judicial appointees who are largely ruling in ways that really advance a conservative agenda versus Trump's appointees that are largely not actually ruling in his favor. They're not really carrying his water. They're instead really, again, advancing a conservative agenda. So what happened in this particular case? Well, as I said, the panel really just clapped back at this ruling that was made by another Trump appointee. I mentioned her a moment ago, Judge Eileen Cannon. As I'm going to argue to you, I really think that Judge Cannon, a Trump appointee, is actually a bit of an aberration in the sense that she made a decision that was just really beneficial to Trump as a person, but not to the conservative legal agenda. And that's not the pattern that I'm seeing. So 
this three-judge panel that's made up by obviously three judges on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, two appointed by Trump, one appointed by Bush, they're very angry, you can read in this 21-page opinion, at Cannon's decision to grant Trump's request for this third party, I've referred to him before, a special master to review documents that the federal government sees at Mar-a-Lago. Now, the problem with Judge Cannon's legal conclusion is that there was just no law to back it up. As I wrote about it at the time, it was more of a political conclusion in search of a legal rationale than an actual judicial order. Now, the 11th Circuit is really coming in and remedying that problem. And the problem is, as a threshold matter, that Cannon's ruling has no basis because she had no jurisdiction to make it. She, in fact, should never have been the judge to rule on this issue to begin with. But what happened is that Trump and his legal team, in my mind, were basically unhappy with the magistrate judge that was overseeing the case, and they just went judge shopping, and they happened to find a friendly audience in Judge Cannon. Now, Cannon concluded that she could hear the case because she had something called equitable jurisdiction. That's very, very rare. And as she acknowledged, it can only occur in exceptional circumstances. Now, she claimed these exceptional circumstances existed, but in fact, the only thing exceptional is just that they found a federal judge who really wanted to rule for President Trump. There were no actual objective exceptional circumstances in this case. And I want to point something out here. The 11th Circuit in this case correctly noted that the only way for Judge Cannon to be correct in her ruling, that she had equitable jurisdiction, that she could hear this case, it would either mean that they'd have to drastically expand the availability of equitable jurisdiction, basically to include all subjects of a search warrant, or they would have to carve out what they called an unprecedented exception in our law for former presidents. Now, the panel, again, they correctly concluded that to let Judge Cannon's ruling stand, it would have set this really dangerous precedent for other cases going forward. It would have allowed other targets of criminal investigations to go to district court judges and basically challenge the search warrants during the pre-indictment phase of an investigation. That's simply not what we do unless, again, there are exceptional circumstances. So I wanna emphasize here that what the 11th Circuit is saying is Judge Cannon had no basis to rule, she had no jurisdiction, and to allow her to say that she could rule would set this incredibly dangerous precedent going forward for all other targets of investigations. So what happens in this case is that Judge Cannon's attempt to treat Trump as above the law fails. And this is really despite her desire to create this unprecedented exception for the president who appointed her. What's going to happen next? Well, Trump will likely file an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court, but I actually don't think he's likely to fare much better there. Yes, the Supreme Court is made up of six conservatives, and yes, he did in fact appoint three of those conservatives. But 
they actually have not made a lot of rulings that are favorable to him personally. Yes, this is a court, again, for my theme, which is making decisions that really advance a conservative legal agenda, but it's not a court that is really trying to advance President Trump's personal agenda. And that's where I do see a big divide here. So let's talk about some of those decisions where the Supreme Court has basically slapped down President Trump's, in my view, really baseless appeals to them. Now, let's begin with over a year ago, the Supreme Court rejected Trump's request to delay the ability of the Manhattan DA's office to obtain his financial records. What's next? Earlier this year, the Supreme Court declined an appeal from Trump that would have prohibited the House Select Committee that's investigating the events of January 6th from obtaining certain White House documents. That's number two. Number three, just last month, the Supreme Court said no to Trump's request to allow a special master to review the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. That was a somewhat separate iteration of the case that we're talking about today. Then finally, number four, just last week, the Supreme Court denied Trump's attempt to block Congress from getting his tax returns from the IRS. Those are losses that have occurred since Trump left office. And you might think, well, what about when he was still in office? He really didn't fare much better. Let's remember that he filed really a significant number of lawsuits that I thought were just baseless and frivolous in order to try and stay in office after the 2020 election. But according to one study, in the 13 presidential election cases that were brought in federal court, again, these cases brought after the election where Trump is trying to stay in power, Trump appointees who ruled on the cases alone or as part of a larger appellate panel ended up casting zero votes in favor of Trump. So again, I really think we do ourselves a disservice if we see these Trump judges as eager to just make decisions that benefit him. They're eager to reshape the federal judiciary, eager, I think, again, to push a conservative legal agenda. But that's a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference between a decision, for instance, to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is something that the conservative legal movement has wanted to do for a long time, and a decision that would block Congress from obtaining Trump's taxes or White House documents. Again, that's a decision that just benefits Trump personally, but not the overall conservative legal agenda. That's basically what I wanted to say about the first case, the 11th Circuit's decision in the Mar-a-Lago case. Again, really big blow to former President Trump. He wanted that special master as, frankly, I think part of his effort to try and delay, delay, delay the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Now it looks like that investigation will be able to move forward at full steam. Now, next topic is this big election case that the Supreme Court is going to hear on Wednesday, December 7th. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. It's fairly complicated. And so I want to try and take this moment to lay it out for all of you. The case is called Moore versus Harper. And I know this is going to sound hyperbolic, but it really could fundamentally alter elections in America. 
The case presents the question of really who has the final word when making decisions about federal elections. And what I mean by that specifically is that the case asks whether or not state lawmakers could implement election laws that violate their own state constitutions with no recourse, no recourse from state court judges, and maybe just a little bit of oversight from federal judges. Again, I know this sounds a little bit in the weeds, but I'd like to march through it because I think we're going to be talking about it more. You're going to hear about it, and it really could affect your voting power. So on one side of the dispute here, we have largely Republican lawmakers and Republican activists that are pushing this theory called the independent state legislature doctrine. I really do think that it's more of a theory than a doctrine. Doctrine makes it sound like it's grounded in something. I actually don't think it's grounded in anything. I think it just represents a really warped reading of the Constitution. But under this theory, state lawmakers, not governors, not secretaries of state, and not even state court judges, would be able to make decisions regarding federal elections. The theory depends, again, on this, I think, really baseless reading of two portions of the U.S. Constitution. The first portion of the Constitution that I want to focus on says that state legislatures determine the, quote, time, places, and manner of federal elections. The second constitutional provision says that state legislatures determine how to appoint electors that will be sent to the electoral college. So if the Supreme Court ends up giving credence to this independent state legislature doctrine, then members of the state legislature, these state lawmakers, they'll be the only ones the only ones in state government who will have a say in these federal election determinations. As I said before, the only other people who could possibly weigh in on these decisions are federal judges, and that's in limited circumstances. So what are we talking about specifically here? What types of decisions are we referring to? Well, we're referring to decisions regarding early voting, whether or not that will be allowed, where polling places are, whether or not vote by mail will be available, and of course, choosing which electors to send to the Electoral College. At issue in the case that's before the Supreme Court, again, that's a case called Moore versus Harper, the dispute actually involves the drawing of legislative district lines called the process of redistricting and whether or not state courts would have the power to invalidate lines drawn by state lawmakers as in violating the state constitution. Again, if state lawmakers are the only ones who can make the decision, then state judges have no role to play. This topic of redistricting is hugely important. And this is not just about state lawmakers drawing district lines. The court in this case could also, if it accepts this independent state legislature doctrine or theory, as we really should call it, it could also invalidate independent redistricting commissions in states like California and Arizona. 
if only state lawmakers are the ones that draw district lines, then you can't have these independent redistricting commissions because you'd be improperly outsourcing the process to an independent group. I know I'm using the word redistricting and legislative lines a lot, but really, let me say, if you don't think the process of redistricting is important, we fundamentally then don't think it matters to have a truly representative government. And here's why. If state lawmakers can draw their own district lines with no oversight from state judges and far less than robust review by federal judges, then they can basically not just gerrymander themselves into victory, but they can infringe on the power of our votes. And getting back to the North Carolina case here, that is what happened in North Carolina. In that case, state lawmakers drew district lines that would have resulted in Republicans winning about 10 of the 14 congressional districts in the state. So this was a Republican-led legislature. Again, the first set of maps that they drew likely would have resulted in Republicans winning 10 of 14 congressional districts. And that's about 71% of the congressional districts. That's fine if Republican voters are about 71% of the state, but they're not. The voter registration numbers in North Carolina indicate that the state is about evenly divided between Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated voters. For that reason, the North Carolina Supreme Court, when they looked at these maps, they were like, this is really, really lopsided. And in fact, it's so lopsided that it violates our state constitution. Republicans' response to that, again, in part, is that, well, state courts, you have no role to play here in policing voting rights because of the independent state legislature doctrine, because it's only state lawmakers that can make this decision. You might be saying here, okay, well, if state courts can't weigh in, at least federal courts would be able to weigh in. And the answer is on some issues, but not on the issue of partisan gerrymandering. That's drawing district lines to try and enhance voting power based on political affiliation, often at the expense of voting power. Now, why is this true? Because back in 2019, the Supreme Court actually shut the door on federal courts being able to hear these partisan gerrymandering claims. And when they said this, when they said, look, federal courts can't hear these claims, they have a line where they say, but don't worry about it because state courts will be able to protect you against, quote, excessive partisan gerrymandering. That's why the irony here is just enraging because it's the Supreme Court that now stands poised to tell us, well, just kidding, actually, state courts cannot weigh in on these disputes either, at least with respect to federal elections. Again, under this theory, and I know it sounds complicated, but under this theory, it's state lawmakers that have the final word when it comes to making decisions about federal elections, and it's only federal judges who can weigh in in limited circumstances. Kind of last issue for this case is what about the Electoral College? Well, the Constitution says that state lawmakers have the power to choose electors. Right now, 
in every state, state lawmakers have given this power to the voters. But other than extreme political pressure, there really isn't anything to prevent state lawmakers from saying, yeah, we're going to take this power back. And even if they don't do that, even if they don't take that power back, as the law currently stands, state lawmakers have the power to choose their own electors after election day. Here's the loophole. If they decide that the voters have, quote, failed to make a decision on election day. That's a really big loophole and we haven't closed it yet. So we have to watch this case. We have to see what happens in oral arguments next week. Simply put, if the Supreme Court adopts this independent state legislature theory, it's going to allow state lawmakers to make decisions really not reviewed by anybody, again, except in some limited circumstances, federal judges about federal elections. This is going to have a really big impact on how we vote in the country. I think that's more than enough for me for today. I hope that was a coherent and helpful update on all this. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can find me across social media now, including on Post and Mastodon at Levinson Jessica. We wish everybody a great day. <laughs>